Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. As US President Donald Trump prepares to address the nation to make his case for funding for a Mexican border wall, Suzanne Lynch will have the latest from Washington on the showdown between the White House and congressional Democrats over funding for the wall that has forced a partial closure of the US government now in its 18th day. But first this week, it's Brexit, and tomorrow, Wednesday, in the House of Commons, MPs will begin again to debate Prime Minister Theresa May's deal with the EU on the terms of the UK's withdrawal from the Union on March 29th. Dennis Staunton, our London editor, joins me now from there. Um, Dennis, MPs were supposed to vote on Mrs May's deal before Christmas and she postponed the vote at the last moment to avoid what would have been a, a very big defeat. Is there any suggestion, anything to suggest that the arithmetic in the House of Commons has changed since last month? No, the arithmetic hasn't changed much, if at all, I think, uh, since last month. Insofar as what she said last month uh, afterwards or when she was talking to her MPs when they had the confidence vote in her, she said that she understood that uh, she had to repair uh, the relationship with the DUP. And her strategy uh, has been that she is trying to persuade the DUP to uh, come on board because she believes that the DUP, if they support the deal, that will unlock the support of conservative Brexiteers. But nothing has happened in that respect. And if anything... When the MPs went back to their constituencies for Christmas, there had been some hope that maybe, uh, you know, within Downing Street, that maybe the local constituency party would say, why don't you just fall into line and back the prime minister? Instead, what most MPs seem to find is that their local constituency party was more hardline than they were themselves. And they were very much against the deal and were quite happy to to contemplate the idea of crashing out without a deal. So the numbers don't seem to have changed. What has changed, though, is I think there are two things. One is that uh, Theresa May, by winning this confidence vote, has made herself immune from a challenge to her leadership until December of this year. And that gives her some room for manoeuvre, which she didn't have before, because it means that, for example, if she loses the vote next week, which she was widely expected to do, that she doesn't then risk, uh, you know, suddenly have to, having to defend her leadership. So she can carry on doing various things and trying more, safe in the knowledge that they can't really get rid of her. And the other thing, of course, that's changed is that the time uh, for leaving has got closer, and that may concentrate minds. So that as the the weeks go by and say, for example, if this deal is rejected again next week, you're then uh, only a few weeks away from Brexit. And the number of options uh, has also diminished so that, for example, until a few weeks ago, you could have Jeremy Corbyn on the one hand or somebody like David Davis or Boris Johnson on the other saying, you leave it to me, I'll sort out a better deal. Well, everybody knows now that there isn't really time to sort out a better deal. So the choice now is between Mrs. May's deal or a version of it, uh, no deal uh, or perhaps no Brexit by having a second referendum. <clears throat> and and if it, the deal is defeated next uh, week, I mean, time, there's very little time then left between then on, on March 29th. What, what does happen then? I think what happens, well, I think, first of all, some things will happen between now and then. Uh, it's pretty clear that the European Union will uh, is ready to come up with a form of words uh, which will uh, offer some assurance on the nature of the backstop and basically say, we don't want to trap Britain in the backstop. We would like this to be temporary. Uh, and so there will be some kind of words of comfort coming from the European Union. That's not going to be enough to persuade hardliners because the EU has been very clear that whatever they say, 
it's not going to in any sense change the uh, the withdrawal agreement or change the meaning of the backstop as defined uh, in that withdrawal agreement. So these would uh, would really be, be words and they would have no legal force. But that still is going to be one thing. And then what may also happen is that there could be amendments uh, proposed uh, perhaps by friendly backbenchers, which might set out the kind of compromises or the uh, the other concessions that uh, that Theresa May needs to win a majority in the House of Commons. So what you could find is that although there is no majority for her deal, that maybe there would be, you know, you could test to see if there was a majority for the deal if you had certain assurances about the time-limited nature of the backstop or whatever it happens to be. And so then Theresa May would return to Brussels and say, look, this is where we are. Is there anything more we can do? And at that stage, you could see some negotiations opening up between London and Brussels. But once again, the Europeans have been pretty clear that whatever way these negotiations go, they're not reopening the withdrawal agreement. So, uh, so it's, quite, it's not quite clear uh, how she actually does find uh, you know, the compromises in, in Europe that would unlock this support from the hardline Brexiteers. If she fails to do that, once again, the clock is ticking. And one of the things that happened at the cabinet meeting this morning was that a number of ministers, including Amber Rudd, former Home Secretary, key ally, really, of uh, of Theresa May's, she said that um, if the thing was rejected, that they just had to do whatever was necessary to avoid uh, exiting with no deal. And that could mean reaching across the aisle to find new solutions. Now, what that means, really, is that you have to come up with something which would uh, unlock the support of enough Labour MPs. And what that would involve, really, is a softer Brexit. So it might involve membership of a customs union, perhaps promising something closer to the Norway model. And all of these things, although uh, you know they would complicate matters a bit, uh, they would probably be acceptable to Brussels on condition that, first of all, you accept the withdrawal agreement. So that what you could find is that after the vote goes down and after she exhausts the possibility of negotiations with Brussels on uh, trying to get more concessions on the backstop, that she's then forced to try to find a majority for her deal without the support of the DUP and the hardline Brexiteers. And, uh, and, uh, and right now, it doesn't look as if that's likely to happen because the remainers on the Labour side feel as if uh, the events are moving their way. And that uh, you know, because her deal is not going to go through and because nobody wants a no-deal Brexit, that they'll have to have a second referendum. But as time goes on, it, it may become evident that although everybody's against no deal, that actually you can't get a majority for a second referendum. And the only thing you could get a majority for is a deal. And that deal is something based loosely around Mrs. May's deal. Um, and now I probably got ahead of myself there. I did ask you what might happen next week and you rightly pointed out there's a lot to happen between now and then. There's something else due to happen today, Tuesday, which is a, a, an, an amendment to the finance bill being tabled by the Labour MP, Yvette Cooper. Just tell us about that and what's the significance of that for Brexit. What this is, is an effort to try to uh, shut down the possibility of leaving the EU without a deal. So it's an amendment to uh, the finance bill, which would say that uh, it, would, it would limit uh, some of the tax uh, power, taxation powers of the government after Brexit, if there isn't a deal. Uh, the government uh, is fairly, sounding fairly relaxed about it, basically saying that 
it probably wouldn't make that much difference. But if the there is a vote on that this afternoon uh, or this evening, and if uh, if that uh, vote prevails, if it wins, then it would be a sort of a show of strength. It would demonstrate that there's a majority in Parliament against leaving without a deal. And what Yvette Cooper and people like her plan to do over the next few weeks is to attach amendments like this to bills on all kinds of things, on trade, on agriculture, on all sorts of stuff. Once again, we're in a kind of a parliamentary guerrilla campaign, which would just use every piece of legislation to uh, to make it more difficult to leave without a deal, and also just to point out uh, the size of the majority in Parliament against leaving without a deal. Um, and so then, on then to the debate that starts tomorrow, Wednesday. Is is the vote now fixed for next Tuesday, Dennis? Yes, it's uh, and Downing Street insists it's definitely going to go ahead. But then they did, you recall, insist that it was definitely going to go ahead uh, less than half an hour before uh, Theresa May announced last time that it wasn't going to go ahead. So, uh, so as of now, they plan to they plan for it to go ahead, uh, and it probably will go ahead unless you get one of these amendments. Which, uh, you know, which would basically be an amendment saying we would accept the withdrawal agreement with X, Y, and Z, and then you could pause the process, and she could say, right, I'm accepting this as being my negotiating mandate, and I uh, and I go back to Brussels. So at that stage, she wouldn't actually have suffered a defeat on her um, on her bill. But certainly now, the plan is that it should go ahead on Tuesday, and. Uh, and the general expectation is that if it does go ahead next Tuesday, that uh, it will be defeated. And in, in, in that context, then, there is growing talk of a possible postponement of the departure date, Britain's departure on March 29th. Is that now becoming a, a serious possibility? Yes, it is, although it's it's not straightforward. First of all, you need to have the uh, approval of the other member states to uh, to extend the uh, the negotiating period. And uh, they will be reluctant to extend the negotiating period beyond May because you've got European Parliament elections happening. And if you have European Parliament elections and Britain is still a member of the European Union, then they would have to elect MEPs from here. And so it just all gets rather complicated. Secondly, the European Union doesn't want to extend the uh, negotiating period just for the sake of it. So they would extend it, for example, if Britain says we accept the deal, we pass the deal, but we need a bit more time to pass the implementing legislation. And so it's a kind of a technical matter. Or if they said um, we need to have a second referendum uh, to put this back to the people. Or if they said we have to, we're going to have a general election, I think in those circumstances, then uh, the European Union would accept uh, and agree to an extension. But I don't think that they would agree to an extension just to give uh, the British government more time to keep messing around as they'd see it. So, um, so I think that, uh, that that you know there is talk of it, and many people in Westminster think it's going to be necessary because you're just, no matter what happens now, you're running out of time to get the necessary legislation through. And uh, and so that's, that certainly is is kind of, you know, the, the denials from uh, the government uh, have become weaker and weaker about the idea of uh, of extending the deadline. So it's, you know, it's certainly something that is on the on the agenda. Um, Dennis, one other aspect of, of this story I wanted to ask you about, which was the, the, the tone of the debate that's taking place in Britain today. And this was brought into sharp relief on Monday when a television interview with the pro-Remain Conservative MP Anna Subri was drowned out by protesters chanting Subri is a Nazi. Has this incident acted as a, a bit of a wake up call? Yes, it has. What's been happening is, you know, if you watch uh, 
the television news, you'll often see uh, you know people being interviewed in uh, this uh, green area, College Green, which is just across the road from uh, the Houses of Parliament. And when it's a busy time, like when there's a lot of news, what tends to happen is that the uh, the various uh, uh, you know television stations they put up these kind of tents, and uh, and you've got this parade of ministers and MPs and journalists going across to be interviewed on these live programs. And you have had for a long time, uh, you know, really since the referendum, there's been a small group of uh, pro-EU demonstrators who you've seen waving flags and wearing funny hats and occasionally shouting. Uh, something against Brexit. But they tend to stand back and they tend to be a bit of a nuisance to the broadcasters, but no more than that. Well, what's happened in the last while, and it happened to start before Christmas and it came back yesterday, is that you've got this small group of uh, right-wing, far-right people connected to um, this far-right figure, Stephen Yaxley Lennon, who calls himself Tommy Robinson. And they wear yellow vests, rather like the protesters in France. And what they have taken to doing is that they will go as a group and they'll follow, uh, say, someone like Anna Soubry, all the way down to wherever she's giving the interview. And they uh, will start uh, shouting questions at her, invading personal space, and then will start shouting abuse uh, while the interview is going on. And they particularly target women and, and members of ethnic minorities. And uh, so... It came up yesterday and it came up in the chamber and the speaker of uh, the House of Commons, John Burke, has written to the Metropolitan Police saying, you know, we acknowledge that freedom of speech and freedom of expression and freedom to protest near Parliament is very important. But, you know, we're worried about the danger uh, that this might uh, pose to people, particularly in the light of the fact that, you know, Joe Cox, the Labour MP, was murdered by a far-right uh, extremist and that uh, they you know they wanted to ask the police to be more robust in policing that area and just to make sure that people are safe going over and back to do those interviews so are we likely to see a kind of different police response from here on Yes, but they have to be careful too because uh, you know they don't want to. Uh, you know they have to be careful in terms of not limiting freedom of expression. It is an important part of the political culture in Britain that people should be able to protest, and particularly they should be able to protest and demonstrate outside Parliament. And uh, and I, and also of course the fact is that all these people they record everything on you know uh, on their phones and immediately upload it and uh, you know portray themselves as victims, and this can kind of you know in the you know, in the sort of social media world in which they operate, it can uh, it can actually help them. So, so I think you probably will see something. I mean, I think what you're probably going to see is actually that while there's a lot of news going on in Westminster, so for example, in the days up to and including the vote next week, there will be an awful lot of activity, an awful lot of broadcasters there. And so I think the police presence will probably be a bit uh, stronger. Just passing by there this morning, it seemed a little bit more, uh, you know, uh, more present and more obvious. Uh, but then I think probably what will happen is that it'll fade away as the, you know, as the focus moves away from the debates in Parliament and then you just aren't going to have as many broadcasters or as many reasons for people to be going over to that part of um, part of London. Well, Dennis, we'll always keep it civilised here on the Worldview podcast. Thanks for that analysis today. We go to the US now, where a partial shutdown of the government has entered its 18th day and this week, many of the 800,000 workers affected will miss their first paycheck. At issue is the refusal of Congressional Democrats to support President Donald Trump's demand for funding for one of his key campaign promises in the 2016 presidential election, a Mexican border wall. Suzanne Lynch, our Washington correspondent, joins me now from there. 
Suzanne, Donald Trump is to deliver an address to the nation tonight, Tuesday, presumably to make his case for a, the $5.7 billion in funding he needs for his border wall. What are we expecting from this address? Yes, this is a highly unusual move. This will be Donald Trump's first primetime address to the nation. Uh, the White House announced it on Monday and Donald Trump confirmed that on Twitter uh, that he would make this address. And then overtures were made to the various networks and they have all more or less confirmed that they will now carry his address. It's expected to be less than 10 minutes long. He will be delivering it from the Oval Office. Uh, some commentators have made the point that this is not Donald Trump's nat- nat- natural milieu, if you like, that kind of formal addressed from behind the desk in the Oval Office. He obviously um, engages better when he's with a crowd, with his own supporters. So it'll be interesting to watch the kind of uh, dramatics and the dynamics of this address uh, by a man who, who, of course, loves engaging with the media. But in terms of the content, we are expecting Donald Trump to lay out his reasons for why he wants this border wall and to really repeat uh, some language that we've seen emanating from the White House in the last few days, which is that that this is a humanitarian and national security crisis. This is how it's been painted by the White House and the issue on the border with immigration. Uh, we're, We're expecting Donald Trump to really hammer that home tonight in his address. But the main thing will be to watch for will be whether he actually says it's a national emergency and whether he declares it a national emergency. It's unclear whether he will do that at this stage. Mike Pence, the vice president, said on Monday evening uh, that the the president had not made the decision on this. Uh, But we may get a bit more of an indication during the day. It's still quite some time before the, the address takes place. And what would be the significance of that if he did declare it a national emergency? Well, this would be a highly unusual move. Um... Presidents have a lot of power in this area. They do have the right to declare a national emergency. Uh, In the mid-70s, Congress passed a National Emergency Act, which basically allows presidents to pronounce a national emergency um, at their own discretion. Uh, And um, usually, though, it's used for things like moments of war, after 9-11, etc., not something like immigration. So Donald Trump would be criticised if he does this for essentially politicizing an issue. Uh, most people will say there's no national emergency on the immig- uh, on the border. Yes, there's a problem of immigration, of people looking for asylum, uh, and of you know a lot of immigrants, and may- perhaps an increased number coming up through South America. But the figures suggest that there is no crisis there. Uh, and uh, Donald Trump will be accused of manufacturing this crisis. In saying that, it looks like he does. It, it, it's quite complex legally, and there are different arguments about this. The Constitution is pretty woolly on exactly his powers here, but it does seem that he does have the power to declare a national emergency if he so likes, and that means he will have access to certain laws that will essentially allow him to bypass Congress on certain issues and, crucially, tap funds, perhaps from the Department of Defence, to build his wall in some way. Again, that's a little bit unclear, but it looks like he would have those powers. Now, whatever happens, and if he does declare a national emergency, what we will undoubtedly see is a legal challenge to that. So it's a bit like his uh, move on the uh, the travel ban, where that was immediately challenged in the courts and is still going through the courts. A similar issue could happen with this uh, issue if he was to declare a national emergency, and that could take months, maybe even years, to wind his way through the courts if it eventually Uh, ended up in the Supreme Court. So in theory, it could enable him to bypass Congress, get the funding Mm. he needs for the war, but actually it would be a very risky manoeuvre, as you you explained there. Yes, and And he would risk a delay with the court. So, But this might allow him to say, look, I am trying to do this, but the courts are stopping me. Uh, So yeah, it's quite a risky manoeuvre. And and of course, he will be criticised for 
you know, these are the kind of measures that are used by totalitarian uh, you know, leaders that, you know, these laws are there for they, they were they were written to allow uh, a president to make quick decisions at times of national emergency not to make a policy decision that he believes is right. So yeah, I think that would, would, would be, it's had a huge precedent in Trump's presidency. So he may step back from the brink on that tonight when he speaks to the nation. And Suzanne, this is the second longest shutdown in US government history. Now, now in its 18th day, there was a 21-day shutdown that began in December 1995. Um, as I mentioned there, it's the first week in which many of the workers affected won't be getting their paychecks. So are we arriving at a moment where people are starting to feel some pain from all of this? Yes, I think so. I think this week uh, things are different. Obviously, the shutdown took place. Uh, it began on 22nd of December and uh, has been going on through the holiday period here. Uh, and Washington, and, and we do remember, even though workers around the country are affected, most of them are in the greater Washington area because that's where most of the federal employees are. Not all, but most of them. So Washington, in any event, would have kind of closed down over Christmas. But but now this week and, and from the end of last week, things are different. People are supposed to be back at work uh, and we're already seeing problems. Uh, this stretches from everything from uh, airports where both Department of Homeland Security officials and TSA officials travel, you know, people in the federal aviation industries uh, are affected by this. Uh, Secret Service agents are affected by this. Uh, and also a lot of programs, um, the tax refund pro program, a lot of Americans are going to be expected to get tax refunds early this year. And Donald Trump did announce yesterday that he has uh, he has uh, ordered the IRS, the Inland Revenue Service, to issue these tax refunds regardless of the shutdown. But they're the kind of programs that are going to be affected. And as you said there at the beginning, this week is a key week because Friday is a day that a lot of these employees will be paid. Uh, so that's a kind of a crunch day. And it looks like if things aren't sorted out by then that they will, in fact, miss their paychecks. This will have an impact, obviously, on lots of things. Most important things like mortgage repayments and bills, etc. And it's beginning to spill into the wider economy a little bit, isn't it? I've seen, you know, references to subsidies to farmers being delayed and uh, mortgage mm. applications that are backed by the federal government delayed and so on. But the one you mentioned, the Secret Service, that's a really interesting one, isn't it? That Secret Service staff are, by and large, I think nearly all of them working without pay. And these, these are the very people, you know, charged with protecting the president and, and his entourage. So there must be a certain amount of anger about this. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's a huge irony here. The Secret Service are there protecting Donald Trump uh, in, in the White House and in around the White House grounds. And as you say, they're, they're federal employees, so they will be affected. Um, but a bit like uh, police in other countries, you know, where we're on a separate issue with the issues of strikes, um, the, these people will turn up for work and they, they will, will most likely turn up whether they're getting paid or not. Now, it does, we do have to mention these people will all probably get back pay. Uh, when this issue is resolved. This, this happened in, in previous shutdowns. One of the issues, though, is that there are a lot of contractors that work for the federal government. They don't necessarily uh, get pay. So they will have missed out in two or three weeks. Um, and this, this is happening in things like the National Park Service and, and, and other federal um, institutions across the United States. So those people are really going to be adversely affected as well. But no, you're right. I mean, we've got a, a whole gamut of, of professions, Secret Service. Um, also, the, as you said there, the federal, the food stamp program that's run by the Department of Agriculture, uh, approximately 39 million people receive a payment every month. And this seems to be one of the payments that people did not realise would be affected. And it, it, it emerged that, because not all agencies are affected by the shutdown, it's only a partial shutdown. So I think about nine of 15 government agencies or government departments are affected. One of those is the Department of Agriculture. 
Um, so what we might see in the next week or so is that a lot of members of Congress will get pushed back from their own constituents around the country, both on the poorer end of the spectrum, people who need uh, food stamp programs and also uh, regular federal employees uh, who are many of whom are just living from paycheck to paycheck and are struggling to pay their bills each month. And is there any indication, Suzanne, of a breakthrough in negotiations on this? Well, the uh, Democrats, who obviously have taken control of the House of Representatives, they have said, well, first of all, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer have asked for their own kind of primetime slot to refute uh, Donald Trump's statements tonight. Now, it doesn't seem like that's they're going to be granted that in any formal capacity, although they may be on the airwaves uh, immediately after his address. Uh, but the Democrats, Nancy Pelosi has said that they uh, intend to bring forward a number of individual bills this week, a kind of a piecemeal approach to try and get the shutdown uh, finished. Uh, so in other words, they will might bring forward a bill on one department or agriculture first and then another department, et cetera, and try and get a vote on each of these. And that's unlikely to work because the, the, the Republican-controlled Senate is not likely to buy into this. But what's interesting is that some Republican senators uh, have uh, expressed frustration in the last few days about this and have indicated that maybe they would vote for this Democrat piecemeal approach, which, again, may not ultimately, you know, end the shutdown. But if they were to vote with Democrats on this, that would be a message to Donald Trump that even some of his own Republicans are beginning to feel the heat uh, from this uh, from constituents. But the, the the problem seems to be, though, Chris, that, you know, we're still, it's the border wall issue. Democrats have said they won't fund the wall. Uh, Republicans said they, they need for money for the wall. So the, the key issue will, will be, will there be some kind of a compromise on this in terms of the money that uh, Congress agrees to give him somewhere in between the 1.67 Democrats want to give and the, the 5.7 that Donald Trump is requesting. And in the meantime, who do, who do you think is winning the political battle here? And, or to put it another way, who, who's getting the most blame for the shutdown, Trump or the Democrats? Yeah, it's a key question. And, and really the, the answer, though, at the moment is that we don't know. Because it's only this week that the full effect of this has been felt, um, any polling that's been done suggests that really at the moment, Democrats are blaming Republicans, Republicans are blaming Democrats. So as a result of that, no one is really feeling the heat in terms of blame for the shutdown at the moment. And then, of course, that means that they are less inclined uh, to concede on the issue. This may change in the next few days, in the next week, uh, as, as I mentioned there, as as, as members of Congress get, get uh, feedback from their own constituents. Um, but what did happen back in that longest government shutdown back in um, 1995, that was during the Clinton administration, Newt Gingrich and the Republicans uh, that were in control of Congress, they, they ultimately got blamed for this not Bill Clinton. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, if, if that happens. Ultimately, Donald Trump, as I said before, I think we've discussed this before, he loves a foil. He loves having someone to blame. Um, and we can, you know, rest assured that he will continue to blame Democrats for this, and uh, particularly Nancy Pelosi. So uh, it'll be interesting to see tonight in his address as he blame them again, and whether it, it's likely to ring true with his base. Uh, but whether it rings true with most of the population will, will be another matter. And, and Suzanne, just briefly on another topic while we're talking there about the Democrats, um, attention is already turning to 2020 and the potential candidates to, to stop Donald Trump from securing a second term. Elizabeth Warren, the senator from Massachusetts, was the first to put her head above the parapet and, parapet and say she's considering a run. How advanced is the debate in the Democratic Party about this question of who their candidate might be in 2020? Yeah, it looks like a pretty crowded field so far. Only a handful of 
people have declared they're not not really seen as serious candidates. But Elizabeth Warren is the major figure who has declared, not officially declared she's running, but has made the first big step in running. And at the weekend, she visited Iowa. This is a real sign. It's a real rite of passage for um, potential presidential candidates. Uh, she's been first out of the traps, making a visit there uh, to voters in Des Moines, Iowa, uh, on Saturday. Um, she has been, though, faced with a lot of criticism. And there's been very interesting debate here about her um, declaration. And essentially, are we seeing a return of some of the issues that uh, faced Hillary Clinton? A lot of people are talking about her unlikability. And, of course, a lot of analysts would suggest that is this down to her gender, essentially? Why is it that Elizabeth Warren is facing accusations that she's not likable enough, whereas someone like Bernie Sanders didn't really seem to face those kind of accusations at all? Similarly, why is Elizabeth Warren, who's been re-elected many times as a senator from Massachusetts and is, by all measures, an extremely competent and successful senator, facing these um, this negative kind of coverage from the media, Whereas someone, Beto O'Rourke, someone like Beto O'Rourke, who lost his his Senate race uh, this year, uh, has been lauded. So I think that's quite interesting. But I think it is ringing true that Elizabeth Warren is not seen as perhaps the right candidate at the moment. Again, her age is maybe an issue. Um, what is also very interesting that we're expecting some kind of announcement. A lot of the New York Times ran a story early this week that Joe Biden is really considering about whether to run. Uh, he is going, that he knows he has to make a decision on this sooner rather than later. And that sources close to him are saying that he is considering running, that he feels that there is no one else really that has emerged that can take on Donald Trump. So that would be hugely significant if he declares. And then, of course, there's speculation over Kamala Harris. She's got a, the Californian senator, she's got an action-packed schedule in the next 10 days or so. I mean, it could be as soon as that that we see someone else declaring. Uh, she is traveling all over the country. She's engagement, not just in California, but across the country. A lot of eyes on her. And then finally, Beto O'Rourke. He uh, is expected to, again, travel outside Texas. Of course, it, he's a man out, out of a job, essentially. At the moment, he's no longer in Congress. He, he fought for this Senate seat and did not win in the midterm elections. So um, signs are that he may declare, too. He would be, I think, a very strong candidate, and he would really electrify at the Democratic field if he was to, to declare. But I think we could see something from him, Joe Biden, et cetera, in the next, within the next month or two, definitely about whether they intend to run or not. And as you say, Suzanne, it is a crowded field, but um, can we essentially expect to see the party kind of divide between those who would support a, a centre-ground candidate like a, a Joe Biden who might mm. have some appeal to moderate Republicans and a more younger, more radical, sort of more more a candidate who might energise the party. Is that kind of where the debate is going to focus? It is. And I think this has been uh, brought to the surface since the midterm elections. We saw a whole crop of hugely diverse, um, much more, you know, very to the left candidates that, that won seats in, um, in the midterm elections. And this feeds into the Elizabeth Warren gender issue, that this was the year of the woman in terms of the sheer amount of of women who won seats uh, in the midterm elections. And yet there doesn't seem to be momentum behind a female candidate at this point, at least for a Democratic nomination. So the uh, the issue there would be, well, it's not reflecting, you know, it, it, uh, choosing a an older white man is not reflecting the shape of the Democratic Party now, and particularly as it manifests itself in Congress. But of course, as happened in 2016, Democrats can't just win the Democratic vote. They need to win over potentially Trump supporters. And those key supporters in the swing states that voted for Donald Trump in places like Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, etc., 
there is the feeling, of course, that Joe Biden would be the man that would uh, be able to engage those voters. So this is going to come down to numbers. Uh, it's going to come down to analysis of certain states. The, the reality is that you know, Democrats are always going to win New York or more liberal states, but that's not the challenge in a presidential election. Uh, they need to win, win these swing states. Um, Similarly, with Beto O'Rourke, uh, I mean, he, he's a very, very strong candidate, but of course he didn't win his seat in Texas. However, he did raise a lot of money from around the country, which suggests that he did energize people around the country, and that's a positive for him going forward. But yeah, it's, you're right. I think we're going to see a lot of the Clinton versus Sanders debate that really broke the Democratic Party in the run-up to, to the 2016 election. We're going to see that, that resurface this time around too. Suzanne, thank you. Well, that's all for this week. For more on these and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.